0: You're listening to an audio message from The Well. A gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. We want to dive into Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 12. Paul says, Finally, Uh, I ask uh, for you to come and do what I am completely unable to do. And that is to take your word and use it to change and transform lives. Father, I pray that you would come and give us your spirit. Give us your spirit of truth. Give us your your spirit of comfort. Give us your spirit of counsel. Counsel. Give us your spirit of conviction. Spirit of the living God, I ask that you would come and that you would just inhabit this space, this place, this time together, and that you would take your word, and that through the preaching of the word, that you would unleash the furious love of Christ on us. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Hey guys, as we we give our attention uh, to the final sections of Paul's letter, uh, here in Ephesians, um, I have found myself kind of living in the past, in a good way, over, over this last week, um, found myself reminiscing, uh, reminiscing um, over where we've been in this study uh, over the last year. And, and what happened for me over this last week, and what I, what I hope uh, will happen here over the next few minutes for you guys, too, is I found myself just getting overwhelmed. Um, overwhelmed at the wealth of doctrine, the wealth of truth, and the wealth of teaching that we've studied together over the last year. This has been a a really rich study. Um, I don't know what it's been like for you guys, but for me, it's been a really rich study. (coughs) We basically dealt with two questions so far throughout our study in Ephesians. We dealt with the question of who does God say that I am? And then we dealt with the question of, what does God call me to do? How does he call me to live? That first question, who does God say that I am? This was in Ephesians chapter 1 and all the way through 3. This was uh, commonly known as the sit portion of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. There's basically three um, sections to Paul's letter you might remember, sit, walk, stand. And in this First section, chapters 1 through 3, we examined this sit portion. What Paul was concerned with was that we might be seated or, or, or sitting in a mess of lies regarding who we are. That's his concern. And I remember with a, with a vivid imagination, you might take this journey with me, a vivid imagination what it was like early on in our study, just to wrestle with the truth, That I am blessed, right? I am blessed beyond belief. I'm not cursed. I'm blessed. In Christ, God chose me before the creation of the earth. He chose you if you're here this morning and you're trusting in Him. Made perfect. Made blameless in front of our Father in heaven. Why? Because of Christ's work at the cross. I've been adopted. I've been adopted by my heavenly father. And listen, my adoption papers, your adoption papers, if you're trusting in him, you've been adopted by a heavenly father and your papers, your adoption papers have been signed by the blood of Jesus Christ at the cross. Listen, uh, this is something else we learned. The sin that was erased by the blood of Jesus at that cross. That sin cannot then turn around and erase the blood that erased the sin. You follow me? You tracking? There's nothing that can erase Jesus' adoptive signature in his blood over you. Nothing can change that. My eternal destination, your eternal destination, if you're here and you're trusting in Christ, it's sealed secure sealed by who by the Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit is the one that seals you up been delivered securely into my father's hands for all of eternity I remember it with three words signed sealed delivered it's an old 50s song I think signed sealed delivered I have nothing to fear you have nothing to fear Well what 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 would we have left to fear if this is really true about you and I have nothing to fear in Christ. I remember this. In Christ I am redeemed. You know where I'm headed? I'm priceless. I'm priceless. You are priceless. If you are in Christ, if you've trusted in Christ, Christ, you've been twice owned by the God who, who not only created you, but the God who paid the price to purchase you from the slave owner of Satan, sin, and the grave. Priceless. I'm forgiven, not forgotten. I'm loved, not left out. In Christ, I have the hope of an eternal inheritance called heaven. I'm not a mistaken afterthought of leftover worthlessness. I am treasured beyond comprehension. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the three of them together as one triune Godhead, one entity, they made a plan for you and I if you're here and you're trusting in Christ in this moment. They made a plan before the beginning of time as we know it. And listen, that plan, that plan had my name on it. It had your name on that plan your face on it. Jesus planned to save you. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, long before you were ever created, long before you ever had the opportunity to make a mistake, to do sin, God planned to save you. And when Jesus died at that cross, when he died with our name on his lips, because Jesus didn't just die for somebody who just might possibly follow me in desperation someday. Died specifically for you because he knows you and he knows the number of the hairs on your head. And if he knows that, well, then he knew he was who he was dying for. That truth reminds us that when Jesus died on that cross and he made this declaration, it is finished. What was finished? It is finished literally meant that His work of saving me and saving you if you're trusting in Him, that work was complete long before the foundations of the earth were ever created. So our salvation is complete, not incomplete. Though I was once dead in my trespasses and my sins as a son of disobedience, God did what? God made me and you alive in Christ Jesus. The power of the empty tomb is now what courses through our lives if we're trusting in Him. I am an object of wrath no longer. Right? I am an object of wrath no longer. I am now an object of my Father's endless mercy, faithful love. For by grace, I have been saved through faith. Nine words. You might remember that. Nine words. Nine fantastically glorious words that I think lead to some of the, some of the deepest theological concepts in all of Scripture. For by grace, I have been saved through faith. This faith, this faith that we are saved through, that kind of faith that believes God, and not only believes God, but also trusts God by getting into the wheelbarrow on the tightrope, if you remember. Yeah, God, I I believe you can push me across that tightrope in a wheelbarrow. I believe that, but I'm not going to trust you by getting in it. That's not faith. Faith is believing that God can and trusting that he will by getting into that wheelbarrow of my fear on the tightrope of my fear and my sin and my weaknesses and my brokenness. That faith, that kind of faith, it's not something that you or I muster up on our own. It's a gift from God. I love having people argue with me over the truth of whether faith is actually a gift from God. Like, where else would it come from? Hello? Right, like, gosh, if, if my faith originated with me, I'm, I, God, it's hopeless. I no hope because at some point that faith is broken, gonna run out. No security in that. Lots of fear in that, though. It's the gift of God to me, not a result of my works. I, I have, I have nothing to boast in except for Christ and Christ alone. You might remember. You might remember, I think Hebrews says that Jesus is the author who wrote the book of my faith and the perfecter, the one who strengthens it and makes it perfect. Author and perfecter of what? My faith. The ability to believe and to trust in Christ, in Christ alone. I'm his masterpiece. You are his masterpiece if you trusted in him. We are his masterpiece as individuals. All created in Christ Jesus for good works. Which, by the way, those good works God prepared beforehand. Long before he ever saved you or I, he prepared every good work that you could walk in so that you and I could live them out to what? His honor and to his glory. You and I are both masterpieces designed for what? To point to the master of the peace. At one point I was separated from Christ. Like an orphan child without a parent. That's at one point. I was like a lost little boat sitting in a pawn shop window. I had no family. I had no hope. But Jesus, best but in all of Scripture, but Jesus. Jesus brought me near to the Father. He didn't just bring me near to the Father, but He made peace between me and my Father, whom I had treated like an enemy. Jesus' work at the cross and in the empty tomb actually turned enemies into family members at one time i had lived like an enemy of god i'd lived like an enemy of christ dead in my trespasses and my sins but what did we learn thanks be to god the father that in his kindness and in his mercy what did he do he killed the hostility between us he did that through the shed blood and the broken body of Jesus Christ at the cross of Calvary. You and I, were no longer like little bricks broken on the concrete. We're no longer like broken bricks lying helplessly in the mud of our sins and our weaknesses and our guilt and our fear and our shame. We're not those little broken bricks anymore. The Lord saw you, and he saw me. And if you're trusting in Christ, he picked us up in our broken and our helpless and our dirty state of being. He picked us up. He put the pieces back together again. He washed us white as snow, and he glued us together with other fixed-up bricks. And together we now make up the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, The church of Christ. The residence of the living God. The Holy Spirit now lives within us individually and corporately. That's good stuff, isn't it? It didn't end there either. I remember the posture of Paul's prayer in chapter 3. For me, it was like a mountaintop experience that I never wanted to leave, right? I think we actually spent something like 13 weeks there in chapter 3. Because for me, I hope, I hope for you, that just the truth of Paul's prayer there was so rich And so good. Like the thought of someone praying for me so that I would have the strength and the the power to know the kind of love of Christ that surpasses mere head knowledge and gets past that down into the roots. And I would be filled with the fullness of the presence of God. And that Christ would come not merely to just live in my heart but to completely inhabit completely dwell within every crack every crevice every darkened room every confused hallway of my heart he came to dwell there god is more than able to do far more than abundantly than all that we could think or ask All that I could put words to, every word in every human language, no matter how many words there are, doesn't even come close to touching what God can do. God can do far more abundantly than than all of the words the human languages combined could produce. All the dreams that you or I could possibly have for our lives or about God himself, God far surpasses that. And Paul prayed. Paul prayed. That we would experience, know at a heart level, at a soul changing, healing level, that we would know that kind of God. Powerful. Remember, we're uh, learning this. Remember, we're learning that nothing can change the declaration of God over me and over you if you trusted in Christ as your Savior. So, when God declared that, that, that I and that you were saved by Him, There's no word, there's no action, there's no thought, there's no extracurricular plan, there's no sin, no no spiritual or physical force that could ever undo God the Father's declaration of saving love over you and I. Isn't that good? Man. Nothing can separate me from the love of my Father in Christ Jesus. See, this kind of love, That that's a kind of love that breeds security. And that kind of security, that kind of security kicks fear and anxiety and insecurity and worry and pride and arrogance, by the way, right out the door. Amen? See, this is who I am. This is what Paul was so concerned with in the first three chapters. This is who you are if you've trusted in Christ as your Savior. In Christ Jesus, you are seated with Him in the heavenly realms, and absolutely nothing can kick the legs out from underneath that stool. This is who and whose you are. This is your identity in Christ. Your behavior does not dictate your identity, period. Who you know you are, I think when digested deeply, does dictate what you do. Struggle in sin today? The reason you struggle in sin is because you do not know who you are. You have a faulty, deceptive concept of who you are, and that leads to faulty and deceptive living. The problem in the church today for us is that we focus all too often on the hands. What we need to do to get better and to act better. And there needs to be a balance there. Like, Definitely need to discipline and correct one another. Hey, that's wrong. Don't go there. question is, why did you go there? Because there's something about my understanding of who I am, and even deeper than that, there's something about my understanding of who God the Father is that drives all of that. And so we need to work down that tree into that root, right? That's hard work, though. Which kind of led us to the second question. Because the second question we wrestled with that Paul was so concerned about in, his, in this study was, uh, how does God call me to live? Right? This was the walk portion of our study. Like who you are is meant to drive the way you walk. This is how Paul turns his attention away from who we are and onto what we are called to do. Who you are dictates how you walk. Almost like Paul's been building a house. started out with the foundation. Who we are and whose we are. And then on top of that, he starts building these walls of this house, right? And those walls of this house, he started talking about how we're to walk, how we're to live, how we're to obey. I mean, he doesn't pull his punches in the what I love to call the walk this way <laughs> section. <laughs> Probably dating myself a little bit there, which is okay. He doesn't pull his punches in this walk this way section. Dude, I think, literally comes out guns blazing. Never runs out of ammo. (laughs) Never lets up. Just keeps after it. We're, We're called to walk in a manner that is worthy of our calling in Christ Jesus. Called to belong to Jesus and to live like Jesus. See, every one of us, if you might remember, like an appetizer combo. right? For those of you that were hungry that day when we talked about that, had a picture of an appetizer combo up on the screen. The entire day, got tons of comments afterwards, like, thanks, Joe. I couldn't think of anything but my stomach. We are. We're like an appetizer combo, big platter full of different things, different people on that combo. And the design there is not to attract affections towards one another. We're not not, not designed to attract affections towards other created beings, although uh, we are attracted to each other. This is what makes marriages and babies. Guys say stupid things. Every one of us is like an appetizer combo that attracts the affections. We're designed to attract the affections and point our hunger to Jesus because he's the only satisfaction for our hungry souls. So like If you're, still, you're here, you're still caught up with an unquenchable hunger for a physical lover to love you more? More physical belongings to satisfy your sense of worth? the accomplishment of more physical goals to feed your sense of accomplishment, you've missed the point. Missed the point of the gospel. Missed the truth that Jesus is the only satisfaction for what your heart craves. That's the message of the gospel. We're called to understand our unique wiring in all of this. Called to understand how uh, we are tempered and how we are um, gifted, what our personalities are like, called to understand those things and then give ourselves away to God as instruments of righteousness and loving service in the building of the kingdom of God, not our own little kingdoms, God's kingdom. And we do this by serving one another and the community at large in unity and humility. We're called to unity and maturity, not division and immaturity. We're not called to be spiritual children our entire lives. We're called to grow up and be spiritual adults and to walk like it, right? called to serve one another affectionately speak the truth to one another lovingly called to put off our old selves walk in the new life not not called to walk in deception or corruption or maliciousness we're called to walk in truth and honesty while laying aside our selfishness for the good of others we should not be known for anger we should not be known for bitterness. We should not be known for strife or gossip or slander or harshness. We should not be known for those things. We should be known for our tender hearted, forgiving, loving others, focused, not self, me, I, focused. Christ-exalting community. That's what we're to be known for. Which means that sexual sin of any kind should not be named among us. Sexual sin of any kind should not even stand the chance of being named. That's a good rendering of that passage. There should not be the slightest hint or the slightest speck or the slightest question in the minds of the community around us that there may even be the slightest sliver of sexual sin among us. We're called to live above reproach in a sexually saturated society. our language, our behavior. All of that is to be clean and proper and wise and pure instead of dirty and inappropriate and foolish or crude. Why? Because we serve a Savior. And that's a reflection of our Savior. We're not to align ourselves with anyone who calls himself or herself a believer but then goes out and lives differently than this on a consistent basis. Not even called to align ourselves with them. That's an interesting statement. It doesn't mean you can go out of the world because we need to be in the world as shining lights on hills, right? This means we should not be intimately aligned with those who call themselves a brother or a sister but then live contrary to this. Called to be shining cities on hills. Therefore, we should not be known for foolishness. Instead, we should be known for wisdom. Wise living as spirit filled sons and daughters of God. Our marriages, our families, our working relationships, all of them are to be a reflection of the cross of Christ instead of a reflection of our pursuit to satisfy our unmet wants, our unmet desires, and our unmet cravings. In all of this, the call to walk in holiness that Paul gives us here. As we seek to bring honor and glory to God as redeemed people at the cross, it all hinges on who and whose we are. Those are the first two sections that I just reminisced over. Sit, walk. See, that's the question, though. How? How do you do this? practical question it's the final question that paul really deals with in the stand section passage in front of us like how do i live my life believing all of that truth about who god says i am how do i live my life in a way that i actually get set free from all the lies and all of the mess and all of the bondage how do i get set free in such a way that i believe that and then do this How do I believe who I am in Christ to the extent that I then begin to actually live differently? How? That's the stand portion. In this passage that we're looking at today, verses 10 through 12, what Paul does is he instructs us to be strengthened in the power of the Lord and to stand against Satan's schemes because our fight in the physical realm is actually... Part of an invisible spiritual battle. Just let that sink in for a minute, okay? What he instructs us to do is to be strengthened and to be protected and to be aware of the fight that we're in. We need to be strengthened in the power of the Lord. We need to be protected by the armor of God. We need to be aware of the fight that we're in. We need to literally take a stand. That's what we need to do. Now, oftentimes, <laughs> when uh, we think about taking a stand, especially in the Christian bubble. Like it or not, there is a bubble. And we've created that. And heaven forbid if you get too close to my bubble and pop it. right? <laughs> in, our, in our little Christian bubble, I'm going to speak that way for now, um, you could use, you can interchange the word uh, culture. okay? And all of our trying to be separate from the world while still being in it, we oftentimes just remove ourselves from the world in such, a, in such a way that we no longer speak with any moral authority into the world that we actually live in. Okay, that's probably part of my concern. When we think about taking a stand, here's what I'm afraid happens for us inside of our little uh, cocoon. Uh, we, we run off when we take a stand against abortion or we run off when we take a stand against same-sex marriage. Or we run out and we take a stand against racism or poverty or the decline of Christian values in America or bathrooms. We run off and we take a stand against those things. Or this political party or that political party. right? Um, and, and I'm not saying that all those things are bad. So don't, don't hear me wrong. Um, as good as some of those things might be, the problem that I see is that they are not the main things. Period. They're not the main things. They're not even the things that Paul is talking about in the book of Ephesians. It's not. Might be able to make some application there, but Paul's not talking about those things. And what happens is when we take small things, and oftentimes the wrong things, and we make them into the main things, then we miss the most important things, and we miss the entire point of what Paul is trying to say here. We misapply it at best, or we just completely ignore it at worst especially when it comes to our own identity and walk with Jesus. So I want, here's, here's the outcome of this. This is what I want you to see. And I think this is part of, when you think of the world outside of the church cocoon, this is part of what I think the world has an issue with. So, so envision this with me. Can you see a dude with the, like, out-of-control addictions standing on a street corner, blasting the abortion industry like somehow that this, this is taking a stand in a spiritual battle while he minimizes and ignores his late-night out-of-control cravings? Now, this is what kept me from following Jesus and being part of a church for so long. So I just want to give voice to what people in the world see. Many of you probably feel this tension. These are sacred cows, I'm pretty sure, that I'm trying to shoot at today. because I don't want us to hear this passage the wrong way. Maybe you, can, uh, maybe you can envision a woman whose addiction to gossip just goes completely unchecked, right? While she's out there ranting and raving about this political party or that political party on Facebook, like somehow her stand, her fight on politics, that's the main thing to be involved in. We must change this and turn this around and get the right people on the bench. Again, not that those things are wrong. When they become the main thing, when they become the main thing, while the character of Christ being formed in us is completely ignored, then we have Major issues, I think. I think, this is, I think this is a fair assessment of the state of the local church, especially in the West. So I think the simple truth that could easily uh, be missed for us here in this passage, we run out the door and try to apply this in ways that I don't think Paul ever intended us to do. I don't think God ever intended us to do either. Um, Paul's calling us to know who we are And whose we are. That's the context of the book. And I'm a ruthless context guy. Because kind of like, you know, if I receive a love letter from my wife, and I just blow it out of proportion, right? Like, totally miss what she's actually trying to say to me. It's like, hey, you're a fool. Fair assessment, right? He's calling us to know who and whose we are. Calling us to walk obediently as children of God. And the way that he says that we're going to get that done is to take a stand. Know who you are. Know whose you are. Walk like a child of God and then take a stand in these things. So what things might those be? Three things I want to leave you with today. Number one, take a stand in the strength of the Lord. Take a stand in the strength of the Lord. Paul says in verse 10, finally, love that, like I've been waiting to get to this for so long. So finally after saying all this, here we are, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Now there's three words there. Strong, strength, strength. And might. Uh, what do you think he's talking about here? (laughs) Right? Three synonymous words, all meant to point to the same thing. Take a stand in the strength of the Lord. In other words, be strengthened in the Lord's power. Uh, Don't try to do this on your own. Listen, Satan is an accuser of God's children. He is the father of lies. There is no truth in him. He is a roaring lion seeking to devour God's creation. He comes with a vengeance. He comes with the intent to steal, kill, and destroy. And listen, he's been at this for at least a few thousand years longer than you've been alive. Okay? So, that means that you and I do not even stand a chance this morning apart from God. Do not even stand a chance against an adversary like Satan on our own. When he comes against you, he comes to rob you of what? Your opportunity to walk into a bathroom? No! He comes to rob you of your identity. Please do not hear me wrong and take what I'm saying out of context. He comes to rob you of your identity comes to coerce you into what? Walking in opposition to your Father in heaven. It's the two things that he comes to do. He's a powerful enemy. Yet, even though Satan is a roaring lion, you know the best picture I have of him? Dude's just a little kitty on a leash held by the hand of a sovereign God. Dude's just a little kitty on a leash, held by the hand of a sovereign king who not only dictates what Satan may and may not be able to do, but he also defeated Satan at the cross of Christ and in the empty tomb of Christ. Satan's done. His days are numbered. Got beaten with two sticks and a couple of nails. Yeah? You may have walked in here today feeling weak, feeling broken, feeling fearful, Full of sin, trapped in sin. But at the end of the day, the scriptures teach us that in our wickedness, in our brokenness, in our fear, in our sin, God's strength is made visible. We oftentimes hear that like, "Oh, then on the other side of my weakness is where God's power is manifest." No, in the midst of your weakness is where His power becomes visible and goes to town and goes to work. So step out of that weakness for a while and start thinking, I got this, I'm good. Guess whose power stops coursing through your life at that point then, right? Because you separate yourself from him. So don't posture yourself as being stronger than you really are, less broken than you really are, more confident than you really are, less sinful than you really are. God's strength and God's power is not made visible in our pretending. God's strength, God's power is made visible as we surrender to him for help. So, point one. Take a stand in the strength of the Lord. Number two, take a stand in the protection of the Lord, right? Verse 11. Verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Let's think about how crafty Satan is for a minute. Now, he's a schemer, right? Yeah, he's a planner. Satan doesn't just nonchalantly come after you, like, oh, look. Eric's running that way today. I'm going to go. Not Satan. Satan doesn't just come after you nonchalantly. He comes after you with a vengeance. Because why? Why do you think Satan comes after you? Because you have the image of God in you. That's why. You have the image of God built into you from the moment of creation. Now, broken and weak and as sinful as the image of God is in you. Satan absolutely hates. He detests. The thought of even a sliver, the tiniest little sliver of godliness in you. His, his ultimate aim, <coughs> as I said earlier, is <coughs> to deceive you in regards to your identity and to coerce you in regards to how you walk. And in so doing, wipe any trace of godliness out of your life. That's Satan's ultimate aim. Aim. Another way you can say it um, is that his ultimate aim is to divert your attention away from God and other onto other created things. If he can get you to stop worshiping and placing your focus and your wholehearted attention on God onto whoa, she's hot. Okay, if he can get you to do that, he's winning. And really, um, this is the uh, description of what Satan worship really is, the worship of self. Satan's so deceptive, it's so good at this. He hates God. This is why we need to take a stand in the protection of the Lord. That's why we need to put on the whole armor of God. Think about the pieces of the armor. We're going to head there over the next few weeks Every piece of the armor that we're going to work through in the coming weeks, man, it's all interlinked. It's all tied together. Okay, it's not like you walk in like you do in, like, kids' ministry. Sorry, y'all, kids' workers keep using cardboard stuff. But at the end of the day, the problem for us is that we tend to think that our armor is made of cardboard later. And that's how we take this stand. All of it is interlinked. The belt of truth holds all together. If you think about it. That's why my jeans are on today, right? Because like I got a belt on to hold it all together. Probably relieved. Belt of truth holds it all together. If you don't have the truth regarding your right standing with God. Righteousness, breastplate. What does it cover? It covers your heart. Your heart will be vulnerable if you don't have the truth in regards to your right standing with God. You'll always be vulnerable to lies. It'll take deep root in your heart. Don't have the truth regarding the gospel of peace. We often teach that as though it's an evangelism thing. And I think there's some application there. But I really think that in a personal application, this has more to do with the way that you walk out your life. Doesn't that seem to fit the context? I, I do that not out of, uh, a, like, arrogance. I do that out of, like, wow, it blew my mind when I first, read, when I first realized that. Because for so long, I think I just read commentaries that were like, yeah, you need to go get your shoes on and go share the faith with people. You know, you can't share what you don't have. <coughs> so it begins here. So the, the real, I think, first application in context, the shoes of peace, readiness, is how the gospels affected my life. If I don't understand that I am no longer at war with God, that I actually am at peace with him, then how will I walk? I won't walk in peace with him. I'll walk in opposition to him and try to hide it. If you don't have the uh, truth regarding what it means to believe and to trust in God, then here's what will happen. You'll never get out on the tightrope in the wheelbarrow with your shield of faith. You don't have the truth in regards to salvation. Your mind, helmet of salvation, constantly be consumed with anxiety, worry, fear, instead of what? Assurance. You won't be reassured. You won't walk in assurance. You'll think that, man, there's some big gigantic... Sin out there that's going to tip the levers of everything over. I'm going to lose my salvation somehow, right? <laughs> it drives me crazy. Never walk in assurance. If you don't have the truth in regards to God's word. If you think that God's word is just a collection of non-authoritative human writings, and here's the deal, like I ran into a pastor this last week. That's what he believes. He's a pastor. What the heck is he teaching then, Right? why would we even gather if this is, I guess, just a social club then? So if you believe that God's Word is just a collection of non-authoritative human writings, uh, your only offensive weapon that's been given to you, the sword of the Spirit, it will just be made of cardboard. Pretty worthless in battle. Lastly, if you think that prayer is just a way of getting what you want, or think the prayer is just a mere duty to be performed, and you're going to miss out on the life giving presence of the living God. <coughs> you miss out on the life giving presence of the living God. If that's the way you walk this out. And weaknesses in any piece of your armor will leave you vulnerable to the schemes of the devil. And Satan, Satan has declared you to be public enemy number one. Best not try to enter that fight with cardboard. You don't stand a chance against him if you don't know who you are. You don't stand a chance against him if you don't know whose you are. You don't stand a chance against him if you don't know how to walk. Like, you don't stand a chance against Satan if you get just a little bit of Jesus with your morning coffee. You don't stand a chance against Satan if you listen to what you like about God and then absolutely completely reject what you dislike about God or what makes you uncomfortable about him. But if you hold tight, you hold tight to a bloody cross while kneeling in the doorway of an empty tomb of a resurrected Savior, then you will stand firm with the full armor of God over you. So take a stand in the protection of the Lord. Number three, take a stand in the right fight. You've probably heard this weaving its way through this message all the way through. I really pray, probably laid it on thick enough, but I really pray that you guys are hearing me rightly, that you don't walk away thinking that I'm opposed to some things that God i are not opposed to some things that God is definitely opposed to. I hope that you hear me clearly. I'm really concerned that we stand in the right fight, um, especially with this word. Verse 12, uh, if you grab your Bibles and look at that, Paul wraps this up by saying, for, he could say because, It'd be another way of using language here, right? Because first he said, hey, stand in the strength of the Lord. And then second he said, stand in the protection of the Lord, because, the reason why is that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. I want, if you could, I would love you to, to circle, underline, star that. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. What do we wrestle against? Uh, against uh, the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly Places. You see, our, our physical struggle that we, that we live in here on earth, it, it pales in comparison to the spiritual battle that we're actually in. See, our, our battle, he says it clearly, is not against flesh and blood. So then why, therefore, do we run off thinking that our battle is against flesh and blood? And then try to dress that up like that somehow the spiritual battle we're involved in. Well, why would we do that? Because we've been duped. Satan's been at this for thousands of years longer than you and I could possibly Think about right, especially than you and I have been alive. <laughs> what does that mean? Here's what that means. It means the abortion doctor is not my enemy. It means that the gay and lesbian couple down the street—they're not my enemies. It means that the illegal immigrants down the street—they're not my enemies either. Guy on the other side of the political aisle from me, not. My enemy. The pastor on the other side of the theological issue, not my enemy. All those fights that I could get caught up in are smokescreens, I think. They're smokescreens for the real fight. Smokescreens for the real fight that we're called to be engaged in. Because I think the real fight that we're called to be engaged in, according to this passage... And according to the context of this letter to the Ephesians, is to simply rest in who we are, whose we are, and how we're to walk. Period. Here's the deal. Like, our enemy, Satan, see, he's our actual enemy, because the Bible refers to him as our enemy. And if you think about other enemies that we have, what are we called to do with our enemies? Love them. So what did Jesus do? Went to the cross silently Give himself up for his enemies so they could become family. Th- this could radically transform the way that we in the Western church try to make war. Because there was like guys in the, Re- in the Reformation uh, period, one of them's name was Zink Zwingli, and he thought the best way to get people to believe the gospel that he was preaching, and I love Zink Zwingli, by the way, I probably would have rolled with him and back in the day, carried around a battle axe you on a battle axe. You ain't going to follow me? You ain't going to trust in Jesus? <laughs> Off with your head. Hero of the Reformation. I'm a reformed guy. How easy it would be. Just get the wrong fight. Go about it the wrong way. Our enemy has a multi-layered fight plan. Been at it for thousands of years, longer than you and I have been alive. Keep saying that. Hoping that point sinks in really well. Satan has rulers. He has authorities. He has cosmic powers. He has spiritual forces. this picture that Paul paints here is like a general with commanders and lieutenants and battalions and special ops forces, right? That's our enemy. That's Satan. He has an organized approach to his pursuit of us, his war against us, and Paul even identifies the battlefield. The battlefield has been defined in this passage. He says that Satan wages war in two places. One place called this present darkness, and the other place is called in the heavenly places. Now, I'm going to start with the in heavenly places and then come back around to the present darkness. You might remember, I don't think it takes much more than this. If, if you've read the book of Job, and if you haven't, go read it. First couple of chapters is all you need to do. Well, you should read the whole thing if you ain't read it, so go read the whole thing if you haven't. If you have, you might remember. Satan walks right into the presence of God in the heavenly places. And asks for permission to attack Job. And then there's a dialogue between God and Satan in those moments. And as you read that, that truth should jack with your theology of the spiritual battle rim, shouldn't it? Like, I, my wife and I were talking this last week um, about some painful times in our family. Um, our daughter, Grace, uh, nearly died once, I went to the hospital. Um, and it was one of the scariest, still moves me emotionally at times. Um, and we were talking about how that night when she took off to the hospital with Grace and I stayed home with the rest of the kids, how much that just marked me. Um, I wasn't able to experience the doctor coming in and saying she's probably going to be okay. Um, I, I, I'm waiting in, in darkness, right, just waiting. I can tell you the only thing that kept my sanity in place Um, was my dad over the telephone that night just reminding me, hey, there's a picture for spiritual warfare in Scripture, and the picture is of a God who will not give you more than you can handle without Him being there. Just stand firm, Joe. Stand firm. Trust that you are who He says you are. Trust that He is who He says He is, and walk that out with your kids. right?" Now, the fight is not only being waged somewhere out there in the invisible heavenly realm. The fight is also being waged right here in this present darkness that we live in. I just make a quick comment about that. Like, that's a worldview thing. When you have a worldview that everything's going to get better here someday, it changes the way that you live and the way that you view God and the way that you view yourself. When you have a view that what we actually live in is this present darkness... That brings a sense of seriousness in which we walk out our lives in relationship to others, in terms of our jobs, in terms of our devotion to the Lord, and so on and so forth, doesn't it? Like, if this is present darkness that we live in, it brings a sense of urgency. One of my favorite books of all time, if you haven't read it, it's a book called This Present Darkness. Named right after that by a guy named Frank Peretti. Oh, he's like, to me, probably the best fiction writer there's a few others I love too, but This Present Darkness and then the sequel to that, Piercing the Darkness, both of them, amazing. Takes some of the very heavy topics that I've been talking about today and proves and shows how we do have to enter fights and how those can become smokescreens so quickly. You can't just hide from the very real social issues we have in front of us. And yet at the same time, there is a way in which you can engage while clinging tightly to who you are, whose you are, and how you are to walk. Read those books if you haven't. All throughout those books, that author does a fantastic job describing the right fight for his readers. And the fight is not over smoke screens. The fight is over the truth of who you are, who you belong to, the truth of how you're called to walk. So take a stand in the right fight. (coughs) As I conclude, uh, I want to say this. Um this ring on my finger from one of our other daughters, the one that lives in uh, Texas. Her name is Harley. Um, she bought me this ring shortly after uh, her and Jordan got married, and it always reminds me, because of what's etched on the ring, that the weapons of our warfare are not physical. They are spiritual. And they are spiritually mighty for the pulling down of what? Spiritual strongholds, spiritual barriers. Can I just ask you, What barrier do you have in your life? Can you remove the smoke screens for a minute and quit thinking about all the smoke screens and just think, what is the barrier in your life to understanding and knowing and trusting who you are, whose you are, and how you're to walk? Because that's the barrier that God wants to pull down in your life. Truth, righteousness, the gospel, steadfast faith, assurance of salvation, God's Word, a vibrant, desperate prayer life. These are our weapons. This is our armor. These are the pieces of the armor that we'll be studying over the next few weeks. And here's the thing, last final thought, Jesus is the embodiment of all those pieces. Like, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. It's Christ's righteousness. Over us. Not my self-righteousness of justifying my life like I didn't do as many bad things this week as I did last week and I'm better than that person. It's Christ's righteousness not my own righteousness that you and I need. Jesus is the point of the gospel. turns enemies into family members. He's the author and the perfecter of the faith inside of us that believes and trusts in God. Salvation comes through Christ and Christ alone. Jesus himself Is the Word of God who became flesh and lived among us. And through prayer, we actually commune with a resurrected and living Savior. Think about this. In prayer, you get to commune, live with, relate to, talk to, feel, be in the presence of not a dead God, but a living Savior. Why would you want a cheap substitute for that or a smoke screen? I don't. I don't want that anymore. I want the real thing. And the real thing is Jesus. I don't want to walk into battle with cardboard covering me. I want to walk into battle being in Christ and having Christ in me. I don't want to sit down in front of my computer screen tomorrow with a smoke screen covering me. I don't want to try to lead my wife and my children with some sort of smoke screen or cardboard. I don't want to try to lead a church or pray or preach out of some secondary thing. I want the primary thing, and that primary thing is Jesus, and I want my heart to want Him more. And I want that for you. The fight we are in is real. The fight isn't out there against some physical enemy. The fight is right here inside of each and every one of us. Our heads, our hearts, our hearts our hands constantly under attack in this present darkness. So stand firm then. Stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Stand firm against him clothed in Christ. Clothed in who you are. Clothed in who you belong to. Clothed in obedience. Take a stand in the strength of the Lord. Take a stand in the protection of the Lord. And take a stand in in the right fight. Amen? Let's pray. Father, Father, I pray that you would come and take this word, that you would strengthen us, that you would protect us, that you would focus us on the right fight. Help us to believe what you say about us. Help us to trust in who you are. Help us to walk in obedience to you. Help us to stand firm. In Jesus' name, amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.